Good morning. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. Paul opens up a new series this morning on discipleship. And our first passage, again, is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Almighty and gracious Father, we come to you with thanksgiving and a desire to worship you and acknowledge you as the one true living God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you for the truth of this word. And we ask, Father, that you would right now help us to um, be free from all distraction. Would you make us eager and hungry to learn from this word? We pray that you would bless the work Uh, that Paul did this week preparing this message. We pray that you would unite it to our one spirit and that you would use it to grow us and mature us and make us more like your image. In your name we pray, amen.
Well, if there's one thing that we can always count on, it's that a January winter storm advisory in Michigan is always going to fall on a Saturday night before church on Sunday morning. I hope you weren't uh, too uh, affected as you drove in this morning, but now we're two for two in, in January. Uh, everything else in life is completely unpredictable. And I do mean that. That part is true. Uh, if any of us are ever tempted to think that we can predict the future, we only need to have somebody remind us of the past uh, couple of years. Um, I'm personally really looking forward to 2022, this, this year ahead of us, but the truth is that in our own personal lives and in the life of our church, none of us really knows which way things are going to, to go. However, there are at least two things that we can be absolutely certain of in the year to come. And that is, first of all, the Lamb and his mercies will never come to an end. God's faithfulness to us individually and as a congregation is something that we can absolutely depend upon in the year ahead. And secondly, we can depend upon the fact that no matter what happens this next year, whatever circumstances it is that we find ourselves in, good or bad, that God will use those circumstances for his glory. And not only that, but that he will use them for our good. That God can use those things to build us up and to make us stronger and to improve our relationship with him. This year, no matter what it is that comes, you and I can learn to walk more closely with the Lord if we desire to do so. We can grow. We can make progress in the Christian life. This year, you and I can begin to overcome some of our bad habits and we can experience the emergence of good fruit in our lives. Spiritually speaking, six months from today, you do not have to be the person that you are now. Now, none of us can cause this to happen on our own. Uh, growing in faith is never simply a result of individual willpower. But as we commit ourselves to learning to depend upon and lean on and learn from and search out and obey the Lord, the power of His Spirit is activated in our lives and, and slowly, almost never instantaneously, almost never overnight, but reliably, what God does is he produces a transformational impact on our lives. And what I'm describing is part of the process of discipleship. And that is going to be our topic of interest this next month. Uh, discipleship is the process in which we seek to learn from Jesus and then to take what we've learned from him and to pattern our lives after his example. Uh, discipleship is the means through which ordinary people like you and like me learn to walk with Jesus and learn to live like him. So over the next four weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be considering how we can grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we're going to see about discipleship is that it has both individual but also corporate components to it. 
And what I mean by that is that being formed in Christ-likeness is something that we participate in both on our own, privately, in the quiet spaces of our lives through prayer and study and reflection and things like that, but also corporately with other people and primarily in the context of the local church. Now, Devin is going to be uh, focusing on two of the individual components of discipleship over the course of this next month. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach a two-part sermon on this full passage that Mary Kay uh, read for us this morning on how the church is meant to promote our discipleship. I'm going to look at the first half of this passage today, verses 1 through 6, and I'll look at the rest of it in two weeks. Now, in in Ephesians chapter 4, there are two themes that kind of anchor the passage together and lie at the heart of it. The theme of unity and the theme of maturity. Disciples of Jesus, Paul is going to tell us, are meant to always be growing more unified together and more mature. And unity, as we're going to see today, is developed as we commit ourselves to believing certain core truths together with other people in the context of the church. And maturity, which we'll see in two weeks, is produced as we commit ourselves to belonging together and participating in one another's lives. Now, the book of Ephesians is a letter that dates back to about the year 62 AD, and it was sent from the Apostle Paul, who was uh, at that time in prison in Rome, to a church in a city called Ephesus. And if there's one single word that encapsulates the message of the letter of Ephesians, it's the word unity. It's all about unity. In the first half of Ephesians, Paul describes the grace of God. And what he does is he demonstrates that it's only by this grace that we can be saved, never by our own good works. And he goes on to tell us that not only does God's grace save people, he says, but it also unifies people, just as it did the Jews and the Gentiles, who, though they were very, very much separate and and almost had nothing in common in many ways, Paul says God joined them together through Christ's work on the cross to form the church. And then, beginning in chapter 4, Paul moves into the second half of the letter. And what Paul introduces in the second half of the book is all about how this unifying grace is meant to be applied in the everyday nooks and crannies of our lives. Now, this passage maybe more than any other passage in the New Testament, describes how the church, and and in particular our participation in it, is essential, absolutely essential for our growth and our discipleship. And that it is in part through our participation in the church that God shapes us by his grace. So I want to read just verses 1 through 6 again for you in a moment. But before I do, I want to let you know what I think we're going to find here so that when, when I just read the passage, you can look for these things and see if you can spot them yourselves. First, what we're going to find in this passage is that Paul calls each of us to commit sincerely to a wholehearted life of discipleship. 
Second, he's going to explain that discipleship necessarily includes possessing healthy and unified relationships with other people. And then thirdly, he's going to walk us through a description of what it is that disciples of Jesus are meant to rally around. What are those things which unify us together? Okay, now I'm going to read it and see if you can um, um, find those things as we work our way through verses 1 through 6. Again, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the first thing that Paul does in this passage is he calls us to live a life of sincere discipleship. That's what he means when he says that he urges us to live in a manner that is worthy of our calling. What that means is that God's grace is meant to be the primary shaping influence of our lives. Now, there's a lot of things that shape our lives naturally in life. Uh, sometimes they shape our lives without us even being aware of them. You know, our, our parents, our friends, uh, articles that we read, advertisements that we see on television, the music that we listen to, the attitudes of the people that we work with. All sorts of things in life rub off on us. But discipleship, is the intentional pursuit of relationship with Christ. It desires to know God and to have one's life and attitudes and actions be shaped by him. And what sets discipleship apart is that the desire to be a disciple isn't something that is ever meant to spring from guilt or pride or a feeling of, not living up or manipulation, but it's meant to look at the character and the mercy and the love and the justice of God and, and to think about just how incredibly good he has been to you and, and to say to yourself, wow, I want to know him more. I realize I'm just scratching the surface and what I, I know now, but I want to know God and I want to be like him. And I, I desire that so much that I'm going to do my best to organize my life around that so that, that that can happen. In fact, Paul takes this to quite an end. He goes so far here as to call himself a prisoner for the Lord. Now, that's really interesting because no doubt he actually was in prison at this time. But notice what he doesn't say is, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And what he means by that is he's giving this sense that what really confines him in life is not a Roman prison. It's a sense of godly purpose that he is committed to living within. He's saying, I am a prisoner to God's calling, meaning I am all in. 
God has captured me, and I am not turning back. I'm committed wholeheartedly. And so he urges us to live our lives in the same way. Paul calls each of us to commit sincerely to a wholehearted life of discipleship. And let me ask you this morning, have you made that commitment? Are you all in? You know, you will only enjoy your faith if you're all in. People that are, are only half committed, that are kind of walking the fence, there's no joy in that. There's no delight. That's just pressure and feeling badly all the time. But Paul says, be all in. Commit sincerely and wholeheartedly to a life of discipleship. and Do it out of joy. And then he goes on to talk about, in part, what exactly that will mean. First of all, Paul says in verse 3, that one thing that is true about any disciple of Jesus Christ is that they are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now that's an interesting place for him to go, I think. And it's interesting because discipleship in Paul's book is relational. Discipleship is always relational. As Americans, we tend to approach life in an individualistic mindset. But the Bible makes it very clear that this does not work in discipleship. And that's because disciples, by their very nature, are meant to be interconnected with other people, never detached. And that the primary context for our attachment with other believers is the local church. In fact, Paul describes the church as being like a human body. It's connected. Everything is interrelated, one part impacting the other. The brains depend upon the heart to pump blood. The heart depends upon the, the, the lungs to provide oxygen and, and so on. So, so that our attitude and participation within the context of the church, whether it's positive or negative or even neutral, is going to have some sort of impact. It's going to have some kind of influence within the entire community. Therefore, disciples are meant to have a team mindset. So that rather than entering into the life of a church as independent consumers, to live our lives shoulder to shoulder with other people, he wants to make it our delight to serve with one another and to encourage one another and to be with one another so that the whole body, the whole group can thrive together. And what protects our unity, he says in verse 2, is the possession of certain qualities that we all seek to be committed to. The character of a disciple, he says, must be marked by four things. First of all, humility. Second of all, gentleness. Third, patience. And finally, the ability to bear with other people in love. That's the ability to kind of brush off minor annoyances and things that we don't like about other people. Now, back in this day, especially among the Greeks, these qualities were absolutely not considered to be virtues. Not in any way. Humility and gentleness and peacemaking, those things were all regarded as weaknesses that were meant to be overcome. 
And I think that that is increasingly true today also. I don't think that those qualities are, are really valued much in society today. I think we've all noticed that people seem to be adopting more aggressive attitudes in life um, towards other people. We uh, love strong and assertive leaders and celebrities who charge forward by the force of their big personalities. We like people who are action-oriented and get things done. And if it means that other people might get stepped on along the way, well, so be it. You, you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet, right? And attitudes like humility and gentleness and patience are often seen as antiquated in society. They just aren't realistic. And yet, the scripture views the possession of these characteristics as a great kind of strength. It would say that if you are patient, you are strong. If you are humble, you are strong. There is a strength in your gentleness. And the reason is because these are godly characteristics. This is what God is like. He's humble in a strong way. He's patient with you in strength. He's committed to being patient to you. He's gentle with us and tender. He sent Jesus for us. These characteristics and qualities, they reflect God's heart. And so as we seek to be humble and gentle and patient with one another, not only does it reflect the heart of the Lord, but it also protects the unity of the church together. Imagine being a part of a community where people treated you with humility and gentleness and patience, and they were willing to bear with you in those things that were weaknesses of yours. These are qualities that keep the other person's interest in mind rather than simply one own, one's own rights and opinions. And what this does is these attitudes are cultivated is it creates healthier interconnected relationships. So what do we have so far? Well, we have Paul telling us that a disciple is someone who is committed because they want to, not because they have to, to walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling of the Lord and seeking to cultivate humility and gentleness and patience and, and bearing with other people. They're eager to maintain unity and the bond of peace. Now, unity is very different from conformity. The scripture calls God's people to be unified, but it, it doesn't call them to be conformed. Uh, in a church like ours, not everyone is going to think alike on everything, and that's okay. You may not care for the opinions of certain people that are in this church. In fact, just as an exercise right now, why don't you point at someone whose opinions <laughs> you don't really like? Me. Everybody's pointing at me. I point at me sometimes too, Steve. You might not love certain aspects of everything that we do around here. Everyone who comes to our church or to any church is going to have certain preferences and desires and wants. 
However, what Paul is going to show us here finally in, in this short passage is that, that while well, all of that is fine, it's right, it's, it's good, he does expect his disciples to focus on and rally around not their preferences, but certain truths, and to make those truths the common foundation on which we mobilize and stand together with other people. We are to be focused on the things that matter most. And Paul is going to give us a list of exactly what those things are in verses 4 through 6. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I want to just share three things about this uh, list. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful set of verses. It reads like a creed. And the first thing I want to point out is that the word one is repeated seven times. Okay, that's a lot of times to repeat the same thing in such a short period of, of time. What Paul is suggesting is that since there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, etc., that all of us should be united as one, two. Uh, again, the Christian faith, he says, is an interconnected one. We're given a shared system of beliefs that is meant to unite us together. We are one. And second, it's very interesting that the first thing on this list is that we are one body. Uh, that is a reference not just to the local church, which is what we are together here in White Lake, but to the universal church, which is the collection of all believers who have ever lived, past, present, and future, all across the world. The local church has an address. We're at 220 Bogey Lake Road. We're not the building, but this is the place where we meet together. But the universal church has no address. It's, it's huge. But if you are a Christian, then you are a part, I assume, not just of our local church here in White Lake, Michigan, but you are a part of this enormous collection of God's people. I was uh, talking to somebody a little while ago who was feeling uh, very disappointed with their local church. Of course, they attended someplace else. You know, that, uh, <laughs> that sort of thing would never happen. Um, around here, um, but I was encouraging them to remember that they are not just a part of that church or even the church in America, which they were also struggling with, but they are a part of the collection of people who have believed in Jesus Christ for centuries and who will continue to believe in him in the years ahead all across the world. You and I, the Bible would teach, are connected to Christians who are meeting right now in secret in underground places in China. And, and they're listening to a sermon right now just like you are. And we're connected to believers in Albania and France and Africa and Iran. And we're connected because we all hold together to these seven central truths. And we have more in common with 
Christians that are meeting in secret in Iraq than we do with many of our own neighbors and coworkers who would look at these things and scoff. And all over the world, Christians are so different than we are. I mean, think about all the different preferences and, and priorities and opinions that everyone would have. And yet, Paul says, we are all united because we participate in something that is much bigger than any of us. One church. And we get to be a part of it. The third thing I want to just notice about this is that everything about this list coalesces around the gospel. Uh, gospel is the word that we use to describe the news that God loves this world. And he proved it by giving up his only son who he sent to die for our sins. That is the central message that we rally around. You want to major on the majors? That's it. That's what's major. We're all going to have differences, but we have one hope, and that's the gospel. We have one faith. That's the gospel. There's only one gospel. And we look to it, and we treasure it, and we use that as our unifying foundation. Now, uh, it is interesting, just one more thing I want to mention about this passage, and that is that you can see the entire trinity in this passage. And that on its own is actually very interesting. If you look at verse 6, it says that there's one God and Father of all, right? That is God the Father. Verse 5 says one Lord, which is a reference to Jesus Christ, who's the Son. And verse 6 says one Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So our salvation, the Bible teaches, is the handiwork of all three persons of the Trinity. Your salvation was a group effort. And when the Lord talks about us being unified and working together as a team, that's something that he even modeled in some miraculous way within himself. You may or may not be aware of this, but the Bible says that God the Father is like the architect of the gospel. He's the one who came up with the idea for our salvation. It all originated with him. In fact, in the first chapter of Ephesians, we're told that before the foundations of the world, so before anything that we can see now existed, God the Father thought that he might like to make us his children. And he came up with a plan to make that possible. And, and that even now, in this moment, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then the entire process of your salvation from start to finish is being overseen by him, our one God and the Father of all. Uh, Jesus Christ, our one Lord, the Bible teaches, is the person who accomplished our salvation. We do not and cannot earn it ourselves, and so Jesus came to be our champion. He came to achieve salvation for us. He opens up for us the door of heaven by sacrificing himself on the cross, dying in our place to pay for our sins, and then he rose again from the dead, leaving us 
with the promise that if he could rise again from the dead, then by golly, so could we. And then finally, our one spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is the one who applies salvation to our lives. It will really resonate with you. Because the Spirit of God is always at work in the nitty-gritty corners and crevices of our lives. And not only does the Bible teach that he seals our salvation as a guarantee for the future, but he also energizes our salvation in the present. He is always working to empower us and to help us as we seek to learn from Jesus and to pattern our lives after his example. Some of us find the process of discipleship incredibly uh, like overwhelming. We think, how could I ever do that? Well, you don't do that alone. You never could. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's him who changes you from the inside out. It's him who empowers you to live for the Lord. And I just want to add that the Holy Spirit also is deeply committed to the church. And I don't just mean the universal church. I mean the local too. Our church. He is present and active within it. In fact, everything good that happens around here is a result of the Spirit's work within the church. There's a worship song you might be familiar with that sometimes Christians sing. It, it's, it says, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You ever sing that song? That's, I get what that's saying. Okay? It's, it's not terrible. But it's not exactly accurate. It's not us who invites the Holy Spirit and tells the Holy Spirit he's welcome in our church. It's the other way around. This is the Holy Spirit's church, and he welcomes us. He says, no, no, you're welcome to what I'm doing, and I want to invite you to join and participate and to be a part of that. Well, anyway, these things are the essentials of our faith, and unity is the result of us believing these core truths, centralizing ourselves around them together with other people. And Paul's plea for us in this passage is that we would live a life that is worthy of the calling that God has given us by doing that, by uniting around these truths, by hanging together, by guarding our attitudes, and by participating alongside other people. And he says all of this is just a part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now let me close with one final thought. Many people have become quite disillusioned by the church today. Have you noticed that? Some of them are non-Christians. Others of them are Christians. And many of them have very good reason to be disillusioned by the church uh, some people have been significantly wounded by pastors who are not shepherds, but are wolves. There's some very disgusting stories that are out there that you could easily find. There are also many churches out there who have cultures that are extremely unhealthy. And what they tend to do is use people up and then spit them back out again. And when churches and church leaders lose focus on these seven core central issues and begin to pivot away from the gospel towards being all about numbers, 
of people and larger budgets and bigger facilities and greater political influence, then the trouble becomes that all of those things have to be maintained. Sometimes you can build them, but once you've built them, you've got to maintain them. And if you want to maintain them, you've got to get people in there who can really get things done, right? And characteristics like humility and gentleness and patience and hanging in there with each other, those things fall to the side because we've got to reach our goals. But the problem becomes that God is not honored and people are going to end up getting hurt. And that is heartbreaking. And it's understandable when people read about these kinds of experiences and stories and, and they say, well, if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with them. And neither do I. I don't want anything to do with that. But that's not Christianity. That is religious hypocrisy. And religious hypocrisy is the very thing in the New Testament that Jesus came down hardest on. And so when we see churches and other Christians acting in ways that make us cringe, it ought to make us angry. It ought to make us mad. It made Jesus mad too. But it should also humble us. And it should make us look within ourselves to see our own needs for reform and for repentance and for grace. It should cause us to want to pray. It should break our hearts. However, it should never be cause to abandon the church. Many people today, I think, are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But a core tenant of discipleship, and we're going to see it in this passage, you'll find it in a lot of other places, is that having unified relationships with other believers in the context of the local church is a necessary part of discipleship. Now, people might say, look, you can be a Christian without attending church. Is that true? Can you be a Christian without attending church? Is that true? Yes, you can. Technically, that's true. You can be a Christian without attending a church. But being a Christian without participating in a local church is like calling yourself a soccer player when all that you do is kick the ball around by yourself in your backyard. Are you a soccer player? Yes, technically you are. But you're a soccer player in a very weak, unsatisfying way. You can have to play with problems, but it's no fun. And it's not really going to help you or anybody else. The local church is meant to be the rallying point for disciples of Jesus Christ. It's the place that we're meant to come to remind ourselves and celebrate and focus on those things in life that really matter. It's the only place that you find that. And sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes being a part of a local church is awesome. And sometimes it's really hard. There's a reason Paul tells us we're going to need to be patient and bear with one another. All those things are really difficult to do. He knows it's going to be hard. Whenever you get a group of people together, it's tough. 
But when Paul says that we are to live our lives in a way that is worthy of our calling, we never do that alone. The life of discipleship is a life of interconnected relationships. It is believing and belonging together. And on a personal note, I just want to say, I'm really thankful that I get to do that here. Uh, I'm not saying that with my pastor hat on. I'm just saying that with my person hat on. I'm just thankful for all of the different ways that people here have sharpened me and encouraged me and confronted me and helped me and given me opportunity and extended friendship and allowed me to participate in things and to fail and to succeed, all of those sorts of things. And I am so thankful for the unity that we have experienced in this church especially over the course of the last couple of years. We have, uh, we, we have been unified. We haven't been conformed, right? We've got a lot of people that think differently about different things around here. But we've experienced, thank God, unity. And, and I really pray that that would continue. And, and those of you who are new to our church, we've got a number of you, new faces in, in the congregation. Uh, we are so thankful that you're here. And I really pray that our congregation would be of great benefit to your faith and that you would be of great benefit to our congregation uh, together. We need each other. That's the message of this passage. We need each other. And being with one another, participating with each other is one of the ways we live out our discipleship. Well, we'll pick back up again in two weeks. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this passage, and um, oh, it's hard, but we're grateful that it is not us who pick ourselves up by our bootstraps to make this stuff happen. And so we pray that you would give each of us a desire, a heart to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to want to be all in. And if we aren't, if there's half of us that feels like we want to be and, and the other half that feels like we just want to sit on the sidelines, we just bring that to you honestly and we pray that you would change our hearts. We, we pray, like the psalmist, that you would unite our two hearts into one, that you would help us. We pray that the relationships that we have within this church would be marked by humility and gentleness and patience and unity Help us to know how and to have the power to bear with one another in love. And Father, we pray that in every way here that the gospel, this message of grace, this work of Jesus Christ, this wonderful good news would be front and center in everything that we do. We pray that you would keep it the central diamond to which we all stand amazed and long to gaze at more deeply and to apply more faithfully in our lives. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us one another. Thank you that of all the churches you could put us in, you put us here. I'm, I'm personally thankful for that and prayerful that uh, our church would be one that would be pleasing in your sight, that would honor you, and that you would be pleased um, to fulfill your purpose in. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Oh,